Good afternoon. It is Wednesday, and that means it's time for IAB Real, where the leaders of the Interactive Advertising Bureau and the IAB Tech Lab get real with you, our members, our listeners, marketing, media, and advertising professionals, and the rest of the world that cares about marketing, media, and advertising, which frankly is the entire world. I'm here with David Cohen, the president of the IAB. I'm Randall Rothenberg, the CEO of the IAB uh, and its sister organization, the IAB Tech Lab. Welcome to all of you. Hello, David. Hello, Randall. How are you? I'm well. I'm Good. well. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm uh, conflicted. I have a million things, you know, flowing through my brain, as I'm sure you do. It's been a, uh, a strange week, as if the world could get any stranger, it manages to do so. We've been beset by uh, protests across the United States because of the police murder of George Floyd in, uh, in Minneapolis. There's been looting in some cities. This is all on top of the coronavirus pandemic and lockdowns. And I certainly haven't experienced anything like this since I was 12 years old in 1968 and uh, wondering what was happening to a world filled with protests and murders of political leaders like Dr. King and uh, Bobby Kennedy. I'm wondering how you're feeling. You know, um, I'm feeling very much the same way. It's, um, you know, I, I look out uh, on the news and I look at what's happening in this world. It's, it's really, uh, it's surreal. I, I don't think I have a reasonable analogy, to be honest. I think this has taken uh, anything remotely like this in my uh, history and taken it to an entirely different level. So uh, I don't have a good frame of reference and I, I look out on the world and I'm, uh, I'm dismayed, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm fearful, a whole bunch of uh, emotions kind of uh, rolled up into one. Let me let me ask you something. Let, let me uh, let, let, let's let's pick up with that. I want to I want to ask you something, not necessarily as a media and advertising professional, uh, but as somebody who's running a company that's made up of human beings. Uh, we were consumed this week by the protests after the uh, the murder of George Floyd. Uh, we just got off a uh, a Zoom call with our entire staff, just an open meeting, uh, to talk about how they're feeling. Some of our most senior and valued employees are told us how much they're hurting. As company president or CEO, what can we do about the fact that our folks, especially including a lot of our black employees, are hurting so much? Yeah, uh, it's. Um, I have to say that you know you have times in one in your career where you think um, that these are particularly meaningful, real experiences. I came off of that call thinking that that was about uh, the most uh, meaningful conversation on this topic that I have heard in some time. And I, I was so happy that we uh, did it. I'm so happy that people felt comfortable enough uh, to talk about it. Um, you know, you and I both know when we talked about what, what do we do, you know, as a leader of a company, what, what does one do? How does one react is there a, do we put something on the front page of our website as a statement? Um, that's probably not sufficient. We wanted to, we, we thought about a forum to, to just an open forum. People could just talk and share what they're feeling. And then the, the fear then becomes is that you set up this open forum and no one says anything. 
and it's uh, and it's cricket. So, uh, and I think that that was absolutely um, uh, not the case uh, here. Um, and everyone, we had lots of good contributions. I think there were dozens of people who actually shared how they're feeling. Um, some people were just very open about what you know. What are we doing as the IAB to uh, to move this forward? Uh, and the, the perspectives of everyone, I think that the, the ground rules are also important. Nobody is wrong. There's no right or wrong in this conversation. There is, everyone's entitled to their feeling. Everyone comes to this with uh, history and experiences. And to be totally honest with you, as a, you know, a, a middle-aged white American male, there are things that we talked about on that call that just don't dawn on me. I, it doesn't, it's that we have a we have a bias, whether conscious or unconscious, that is kind of, is who we are. And there are things that African-American uh, men and women are dealing with that's, that just simply are not part of uh, my day-to-day. -day. And that, I think that that is just, uh, it was an eye-opening uh, kind of conversation. The thing, the last thing I'll say, and, and this is a something that we're gonna have to work through, is that it's very simple to just uh, you know, say I'm outraged and, and put out a statement, it's, it's much more difficult to have a kind of longitudinal uh, response to this, something that actually happens over time. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, some of us are sometimes guilty of having the best intentions and then kind of work and life and everything else gets in the way. We have to make sure as a company, we're disciplined enough to, we have a DNI council, we have activities that we schedule, we must uh, put our money where our mouth is, we have to put, invest the time. You know, I, I might've said this to you before, but I'll repeat it for the sake of this argument. Um, uh, Nick Bryan, who has been around in the business for a long time, one of, the, one of my mentors from a while ago, he had a, a, state, a saying that he said to me all the time, uh, don't tell me you're funny, make me laugh. Um, so actions speak much louder than words, and I think that that's something that that we need to wrestle with um, here. Let me let me let me pursue that a bit with you, because uh, I I love thinking about uh, leadership issues. I love wrestling uh, with them, and it's something that, of course, we live because we've been given the privilege of running organizations. Uh, it, by backdrop, as you know, we had our Washington Board of Directors meeting yesterday. Of course, it wasn't in Washington, but it was yeah, of yeah. Washington. We had a lot of leaders of Congress of both parties uh, show up. Um, and we had about 50 of our uh, members and their policy leaders there. Very, very, very senior executives. So um, at one point, as you know, we had a, a sidebar conversation of, uh, of the whole. Instead of having presentations at that moment, we spent you know, half an hour, 40, 40 minutes uh, talking about what was going on in our companies. And we asked the question, uh, you know, how are they keeping their teams together, you know, during this now, you know, multidimensional crisis. But we were also focused especially on this, this issue of um, the, uh, the Floyd murder, uh, the attacks on black people around the country. That's been just a overwhelming, the word we kept hearing from them, or at least that I kept hearing over and over again, was vulnerability. You've got to show vulnerability. That's how they're dealing with it as leaders of teams and as leaders of companies. And I'm wondering, how can you be vulnerable and still be a leader? Any thoughts? Yeah, um, I definitely do. And it's, it's a topic that uh, has come up um, many times throughout my career. I think that, you know, 
Uh, every, every leader has strengths and weaknesses, myself included. Uh, I have my flaws and I have things that I think I'm, I'm good at. Um, showing um, signs of, uh, of weakness, admitting when one is wrong, um, uh, I think is something that is a, uh, a great sign of, uh, of a good leader. And it's something that I think has been honed over time. Uh, my wife, um, Francine, is a big uh, advocate of Brene Brown. Uh, I don't know if you know her, but she's a, a speaker who um, has given TED Talks and, and uh, speaks on this topic all the time. Uh, vulnerability, um, showing that no one has all the answers, because um, we don't. Uh, you, know, there is, you can be a CEO or a president and you don't know uh, the right thing to do all the time. Uh, we heard another phrase yesterday that immediately comes to mind, which I wrote down and I believe you wrote down, it's kind of leading from the rear, leading, leading from the back as opposed to leading from the front. And this call that we just had, which was our entire company, which had junior level people, mid-level people, senior level people, everybody having a point of view and expressing passion around this topic is what we need to foster. We need to foster as much leading from the back as we do leading from the front. And that's, um, I think it's just admitting the warts and all, the, the kind of, um, I ask as a, another data point, uh, and I'll turn this around and ask you the same question. Uh, whenever I give a, uh, a review of somebody, um, I ask the question to provide critical feedback to me. Um, so, cause I'd love to learn what I'm doing uh, wrong or what I could be doing better as well. That critical feedback shows I'm willing and open, assuming I don't get defensive by what someone says, that I'm, I'm willing and open to be vulnerable because I, I don't, I'm not perfect. Um, and I find that that has been, and it's real and it's true and it's very effective at kind of letting your teams know that, um, that you're open to criticism. Yeah. So I'll, I'll ask you back that question. What, what, what do you, what struck you uh, in that conversation and how do you show vulnerability? <laughs> Well, you know, it, what, I, what I keep thinking back on is uh, uh, when I became uh, chief marketing officer of Booz Allen, the big consulting firm, and that happened exactly one month before the terrible recession of kind of 2001, 2002, 2003 hit. And um, I remember the first act uh, I, I had to perform uh, at, you know, as CMO, which by the way, was the first senior executive man management job I'd ever held, was to um, uh, lay off 30% of the, uh, the global uh, marketing staff. And it was a terrible time. It was just an awful time. Uh, but, you know, succeeded in doing it. And, um, and I remember when my review time came around, I just got hammered. I got pummeled uh, by folks. And, and, I couldn't understand it. Uh, you know, these are my bosses, you know, kind of attacking me when I spectacularly succeeded in doing what they asked me to do, which is, you know, get control of the uh, wayward finances and reduce headcount by 30%. And one of them uh, said, you don't understand. You actually have to love your team. You have to love them. It doesn't mean you, you uh, can't be demanding of them. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you can't take tough decisions. It doesn't mean that you can't do very difficult things when you're forced to do them. But they have to know that you care for them as both human beings and as professionals. And that's what allows you the, uh, the strength to go on 
and also gives them the ability to think of you as somebody they want to follow, not somebody they're forced to follow. So I'm not sure if that's, you know, I, I guess love is a form of vulnerability. You know, the other thing that I think of is the classic, uh, you know, kind of man, woman, Mars, Venus dichotomy uh, you hear all the time. And I think all of us have faced in, uh, uh, in relationships. Uh, and that is, you know, sometimes, you know, your, your girlfriend or your spouse may come, you know, in distress to you. And, you know, as a guy, what I learned is that my reflex is to want to fix things. I just yeah. want to fix things. Yeah. You know, oh, here, have, what, do you, what about this? Maybe you can try this. Maybe you can do that. And that's actually not what people necessarily want. They just want to speak. They want to be listened to. They just want to know that you're empathetic. They just want to feel your hand on their back. And that was something uh, that took me a long time to learn, took me a divorce to, uh, to learn it. Um, I'm sure I'm still not anywhere near good enough at it. I'm better than I was. I think of those two things that, yeah, you, sometimes, as you said, you just got to listen. You just got to listen and show you care. But you can't just show you care. You actually have to care. That's what then gives you the authority to make tough decisions. Let me, yeah. let, let me, let me, let me change uh, topics a little bit and go back to the, uh, go back to the board meeting. Um, uh, two other words we heard a lot yesterday from the CEOs, CROs, CMOs, digital company founders on our board of directors were agility and flexibility. And I want to unpack those because when we keep hearing from folks in our industry uh, we need to be more agile. We need to be more flexible in the face of this crisis. The implication is that the ad industry historically has not been agile or flexible. Um, you've been in the business a long time. You've been running companies and teams for a long time. Is that true? And if it, and if it, if it is true that we haven't historically been agile or flexible, why not? Yeah. Uh, means different things to different people. And I think that that's, um, that's a, uh, it's true of particular vertical categories or industries. It's true of individuals, of businesses. You know, to some, flexibility and agility is the ability to uh, optimize in market in real time. And we know that that is true of some uh, opportunities and not true of others. In, in others, it's the ability to uh, pay with a longer lead cycle. So, uh, uh, you know, 90 days or 120 days. Uh, in other days, in other uh, cases, it's the it's the ability to change creative uh, based on what you're seeing uh, happen uh, in market. So, uh, and 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 as you can imagine, there are different uh, channels that that do a better job of this than others. I mean, I I have been I've been fortunate and I've been on both sides of the equation. If you wanted to look at the two kind of uh, polar opposites, you have by and large uh, the linear television business, which is um, less agile generally, you know, booking a year in advance, having uh, opt optimizations quarterly, etc. But the contracting um, uh, processes are very nimble, right? There is hardly any contracting. It's basically, yes, I, we want to do this. We want to spend $300 million. You do a term sheet, done. On the digital side of the equation, we have the ability to cancel on the fly, put something in market, see what it does, change as we go. But we have uh, lawyers that get involved and technicians that get involved and kind of terms and conditions that could be laborious. And honestly, some of those 
deals take two weeks to make their way through our legal process, through a legal process, to be able to get done. So there's, it's not a very, it's not a simple uh, answer. So I think the, the, the quick answer is agility means different things to different people. I think by and large, uh, we have done a reasonable job of identifying the friction points, the areas of the business that uh, need to be optimized, workflow automation, as an example, from pre-planning to op uh, post-buy is painful. I mean, depending on which, which uh, media type you're talking about, there is certainly opportunity for us to take some of that human capital out and let folks do things that are more strategically oriented than kind of uh, labor intensive. Um, so I'd give us a, I'd say a B minus uh, on the agility front if I was saying all up. Uh, and obviously there are different pockets of that that would, uh, would fare better than others. Hmm. You know, the, the paradox here, and, and it's still something that I can't resolve, is you've got digital, which allows you to create things and recreate them like that, you know, moments notice. And yet there's something in the underlying, I don't know, legal processes, relationship processes uh, uh, that make it difficult to do that kind of stuff. On the other hand, you've got television where you can spend you know, months and months, even a year, uh, you know, creating a blockbuster television ad. Um, uh, you've got these, you know, as you said, hundreds of millions of dollars put on the line, and yet the contracting part of the relationship processes can move really smoothly and really quickly. That's the part that I can't reconcile. It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, I agree. I, I don't understand why it is either, other than that's the way that it has always been. Uh, and, you know, a, as you well know, you have been uh, my partner in crime as we've been kicking off this initiative that we have our uh, leadership meeting today uh, around television. Uh, this is one of the areas that we are going to kind of investigate. Uh, there are surely opportunities for us, if we look at video all up, uh, for us to become more agile reduce friction, allow the buy side and sell side to kind of transact in a more meaningful way, be more consultative in our sell, up-level the conversation. You know, I, I think that this, we've made some great progress, uh, don't get me wrong, but I think there's still a lot to do. And as the lines of, are blurring between platforms, it becomes even more uh, acute. So I, I'm looking forward to that as a, uh, as a kickoff meeting today. Let me ask you a question, sir. Yes. Um, the, if I think about the, the things that have taken place uh, in the past week outside of um, uh, the things that we've already discussed, um, the social injustice issues, uh, the big news was that President Trump uh, issued a blatantly illegal executive order uh, where he threatened social media companies uh, and he was punishing them because he didn't like them fact-checking his falsehoods, uh, and we had a very, very strong statement that we came out with uh, immediately. And I'll just read it uh, for the sake of reading it. Uh, the president's executive order is the gravest assault on the right to free speech since the Nixon administration and an attempt to turn the open and advertising supported internet into a political arm of the US government. It is a uh, blatantly illegal attempt to stifle facts and opinions with which the administration disagrees by threatening the creators and the distributors of protected content with government persecution and economic sanctions. It is a familiar tactic of juntas in places like Pakistan and Argentina and will not gain traction in the United States 
because it clearly oversteps the bounds of executive authority, attempts to subvert more than 200 years of First Amendment law, won't stand in court, and won't gain congressional approval. But there's still reason for everyone, from CEO to average citizen, to be concerned, for in the longer term, this administration's continued attempts to subvert the open web threaten our economy, society, and form of government, which depends on free flow of fact and opinion. So this executive order, as you well know, is an attempt to overturn Section 230. What is Section 230 and why is it so important? So Section 230 is one of the most misunderstood things in our industry. It's actually a very short section of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, which was, uh, that act fundamentally was a way of controlling access to and the spread of pornography in what was then a very new medium, the internet. But this was, uh, was something that was carved out uh, to provide sets of uh, protections to the then small, tiny, uh, you know, nascent uh, internet content industry. And what it, what it does, what Section 230 does, is it says that uh, online service providers, and that's the, the phrase that it uses, online service providers um, are not going to be held liable for the things that others post on their sites. But at the same time, Section 230 uh, makes it clear that those companies still have the right and the opportunity to curate their sites. And that's where a lot of the mystery and uh, uh, misapprehension around Section 230 lives. I mean, fundamentally, Section 230 allowed um, these, uh, 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 this burgeoning medium uh, to grow without uh, fear that it was going to be stifled by you know, millions upon millions upon millions of lawsuits for, uh, for opinions um, and other kinds of postings that individual companies would not be able to police. Um, it's been called, there's a, actually a pretty you know, famous uh, legal uh, book written by a legal scholar called The 26 Words That Invented the Internet. Um, and Section 230 is those 26 words. Uh, but it's also a source of a lot of confusion. So, but if you were to kind of unpack that, we had a speaker yesterday uh, at our board meeting. And one of the things that I took away from that is that there's kind of different strata, if you will. Um, and there's uh, broadcasting, there's press, there's common carriage, and then there's this kind of bookstore. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. It was, we, we had, uh, you know, uh, at our board meeting yesterday, Mike Godwin, who himself is one of the godfathers, the founding godfathers of the internet. He was the uh, first in-house lawyer at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, he's the author of many uh, uh, books uh, famous for inventing Godwin's Law, uh, which uh, is a uh, half facetious but half serious effort to kind of, uh, you know, grapple with social media communications. Godwin's Law says that um, uh, the longer any uh, social media conversation goes on, the likelier it is that it will eventually uh, include references to Nazis and Hitler. So, uh, so Mike spoke uh, and he pointed out something that's really, really important. In our world, uh, in the way Section 230 has been misinterpreted, uh, uh, people see there as being just two things. There are platforms and there are publishers. And if you're a publisher, that means you're editing things and you're making choices. And again, in the misinterpretation, 
uh, publishers aren't protected. Uh, they are liable for those things. And then in the caricature, there are platforms and platforms aren't allowed to curate, aren't allowed to edit, aren't allowed to do anything. That's what makes them platforms. Um, and that protects them from liability. And that's been unfair because so the character goes, publishers are under greater burdens than the platforms are under. Uh, than the platforms are under. And that's wrong in several regards. You know, uh, one is that the First Amendment uh, uh, protects lots of things that don't have anything to do with what you and I would think of as publishers. I mean, the right to assemble is an obvious one. But it also protects bookstores and it protects newsstands. Uh, you know, bookstores and newsstands aren't publishing things, they're carrying things. So platforms under the, the way uh, Section 230 was constructed are considered to be more like uh, newsstands in bookstores than they are either uh, as publishers or as common carriers. The platform in the caricature would be more like a common carrier. But the analogy also kind of goes further and is more helpful because bookstores and newsstands are allowed to choose what they carry and what they don't carry. If my corner newsstand doesn't want to carry hardcore pornography, it doesn't have to. If another one wants to, it can. That's a choice it is allowed to make and it is a protected choice. Nobody can come in and say, bookstore, you are a uh, newsstand, you are required to carry these publications and you're required not to cover any others. Or you, you, David Cohen, can't go to a newsstand and sue it because it's not covering, uh, it's not carrying Cohen's Quarterly, you know, the uh, scholarly journal that, uh, that you put out. Which is a rip-roaring good time, by the way. I yeah, I'm sure it is. So that's pretty important, is to understand that, uh, that platforms have, very much have the right to curate, have the right to do, for example, what Twitter did this week, which is label President Trump's tweets. They could also remove them if they wanted to. The other part that was important, and Mike Godwin did point this out explicitly, publishers themselves are protected by Section 230. If you're the New York Times or Vogue.com or you name it, um, and you have a comment section that people are posting onto, Section 230's protections against liability also devolve to you. You are protected from what other people say on your platform. I think the way I would shorthand it is that in the world we inhabit, many platforms uh, uh, have characteristics of publishers and many publishers have characteristics of platforms and they're all protected by Section 230, which is what President Trump was attempting to undermine in his executive order. He's trying to take those protections away. But it is fair to say, just to push on that for a second, and I know that we're uh, running out of time. Time goes very, very quickly when we're getting into topics like this. There is a difference uh, in the way that Twitter has approached uh, their kind of go-to-market and Facebook has. Uh, so um, does the uh, law require platform neutrality or a similar way to approach approach uh, uh, this, or is there, is there room for interpretation? Not at all. There's, there, there's a lot of room for, not interpretation, there's a lot of room for different approaches. Okay. Uh, uh, one of the points that Mike Godwin made in our board meeting yesterday that I thought was pretty well taken is that the, uh, uh, the digital platforms, the ones that you and I would think of as platforms, um, 
we're kind of ham-fisted and very, very slow and very, very kludgy in the way they've approached this question of uh, you know, uh, how, if at all, they should curate um, their, uh, their content. For the most part, they've taken a very hands-off view for many, many years. They're just going to say, hey, we don't have the ability to do this, or hey, we're completely neutral, so we're not going to do it. As I pointed out in my um, speech to the IB annual leadership meetings now three years ago, a speech called Repair the Trust, they had both a right and a responsibility to clean up their acts and clean up their platforms. And it's taken three years since my speech for Twitter to follow along. But what was so interesting is that Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook has consistently in this week, you know, reaffirmed that they're just going to continue to take a completely hands-off view. And from you know, Godwin's point of view, that's what's gotten the internet and social media companies uh, in trouble. They kind of want to do some curation. They don't want to do a lot of curation. They're kind of not sure you know, what their role is. And I think it's that, that level of unsurety that has made them very, very targetable by, uh, by opposing forces. Yeah. Oh, well, I, I'm being told that we have to wrap up now. So, uh, so I'll, I'll, we'll use that last comment, David, as a, uh, you know, as a bit of a, uh, uh, of a lead in to our, uh, to our next go around when God knows what else is going to happen in society that we'll be able to, uh, uh, to pick up on. Uh, folks, that is it for IAB Real for this week. Uh, please make sure to, uh, to tune in at your leisure. We're now carried on all the major podcasting platforms from Spotify to Apple and beyond. So we hope you listen to us. We'd love to get your, uh, your feedback. Uh, on behalf of the IEB and our president, David Cohen, and our this week silent IEB Tech Lab president, Dennis Buckheim, this is Randall Rothenberg signing off. See you out in the digital media world. Bye-bye.